Um, we're going to be in Hebrews. We're going to continue walking through the book of Hebrews. If you want to turn there, that'd be great. We'll have it up on the screen for you if you need it. I um, want to remind you, those of you that are our people, TSF people, man, we are giving um, not just our regular tithes and offerings. We're also giving um, to our, our legacy, our building fund. And we're not doing pledges, at least not for now. Um, we're just kind of going into, into giving. We spent about six or eight weeks praying through things. Um, and now we're at that point where we are giving and giving on purpose um, and, and giving sacrificially, um, stretching ourselves to give. Um, you know, we've got several young married life groups and we've got on Wednesday night, I think there were like 54 kids here for Sanctus. And um, uh, we have... Um, our refuge team, a group that meets on Tuesdays, and our kids that are back there right now, you know, we want to leave them uh, a place and a base of ministry for a long time. Um, and uh, it may be this place, and it may be somewhere else. So we're having all those conversations now, but we need to be ready, so make sure that you're giving um, toward that as we go. Just something maybe to pique your interest, a couple of ideas. And I know, in the, on the one hand, we've talked about this before. I would love, part of my heart is in this, I would love to have like a, a counseling, a biblical, true biblical counseling center associated with our church. It gets tiring as a pastor to farm people out all the time um, to other kinds of counseling. So I would love to have a counseling center here. Um, and then what if we did this? How many of you guys ever went to Holy Roast Coffee? Remember Holy Roast? Okay. They effectively went out of business because A, running any kind of restaurant, you have a very slim margin for error, you know, and, and uh, making your, your profit. But their lease killed them where they were. What if we had a place a Holy Roast could be? And we just gave it to them, you know, let them run it, you know, free of charge. And it's a place of ministry in our community. We've actually talked with him a little bit about that. So um, this kind of stuff I'd love to do, um, but we can't do it unless we give, right? Um, so let's give and let's dream big, right? Let's think big and dream big, man. Who knows what God wants to do here? Um, so uh, let's be prepared for that, okay? Um, so Hebrews will be in chapter 4. Um, if you want to go ahead and, 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 uh, and turn there. Hebrews chapter 4. How many of you guys can grow plants? You have what we call a green thumb. Okay, all right. Does anybody have luck with indoor plants? We used to have some plants. I don't know what they were. They kind of, they're like a vine or something, and you really can't kill them. I don't know what it was, but they would, they would just grow. We put those little Job plant spikes in there, you know, and watered every other six weeks or something. I don't know. And they just wouldn't die. And we used to have those all over our house and everything uh, years and years ago. So I don't know if Mindy or I, either one of us really are, are, are green thumb kind of people. You know, I know that you need water and good soil and some light and some kind of food. Apparently plants eat stuff. Um, so you got to have some of those things in place for your plants to do well. Um, I ran across a, a story this week of a lady named Callie, I think her name's Callie Wilkes, and she said she's had a succulent, you know, succulent plant, which are a really big deal right now. I've had this beautiful succulent now for about two years, she said. I was really proud of this plant. It was full, beautiful coloring, just a perfect plant. Uh, she said, I put so much love into this plant. I washed its leaves. I tried my hardest to keep it looking its best. I had it up in the kitchen window, and I had a watering plan for it, a schedule for it. And she said, if somebody else tried to water my succulent, I would get defensive because I just wanted to take good care of it. Uh, I, she goes, oh, so I go to pull it out of the little container that it was purchased in, and then you have a picture. Can you still that picture up there? So she goes to transplant it, and this is what she finds on the right. It's, it's a plastic plant. <laughs> on the right, it's, it's plastic, and then there's a little layer of like fake rocks, and then there's foam. She'd been watering a fake plant for two years. 
two years she's been caring for this succulent plant. She goes, I, I go to pull it from the original plastic container and I learned that this plant was a fake instead of a healthy root system. This girl's 24 years old, by the way. Nothing about mil millennials. Y'all are awesome people. But she, she's 24. She pulls her beloved plant from the container. She found a styrofoam block with sand glued to the top of it. <laughs> this was the plant that she'd been watering for two years. And it just... It made me think so much of, for me, it made me think of Hebrews, that I think there, there are some people in here. And I want to ask you the question, what if you're watering the wrong plant in your heart? What if you're watering the wrong plant of what it looks like to follow Christ? You're all about religion, and you're all about being good, and you're all about trying hard, and you're all about keeping rules, and you're really good about making sure everybody else in your life keeps rules. What if you're just watering the wrong plant? What if what you think what if what your version of what it looks like to potentially follow Christ is just really absolutely completely wrong? Religion, morals, self-justification, self-fulfillment, happiness, some kind of juju spirit voodoo that some of us carry around, slot machine prayer with God, you're gonna escape bad things. This is your version of Christianity. Is your Christianity really just a plastic plant Either by choice, you're fooling other people, or by ignorance, you have a poor understanding of it. We are told throughout Hebrews, pay attention. Pay attention to your spiritual walk. Pay careful, close attention. Review your life in Christ. Think about what you believe about Jesus. Think hard about what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And then he says in Hebrews, be afraid unless you miss that life in Christ. Be afraid that you would miss the true life in Jesus Christ. And then he says, man, be diligent to enter into that rest. Be diligent to enter into what it looks like to really walk with Jesus Christ. So being diligent means, man, you pay attention and you work hard, right? So this is the message that we've heard so far because he says there are people sitting among you. There are people who are with you who are not of you. There are people in the room who, who uh, say the right things and look the right way, but they don't have this relationship with Christ. And they may themselves be convinced that they do. Be diligent. Be, be, uh, be uh, circumspectful, I guess you would say, of your relationship with God and make sure that you're not watering uh, the wrong plant. Last week, um, at the very end of, we looked at chapter 4 and we looked at verses 12 and 13 and in those verses it says that our thoughts and our hearts and our intentions are truly seen and understand by God. That God sees our hearts, God sees our motives, God sees our, our thoughts and our intentions. They're clearly exposed by the word of God and for some of us that is a terrifying thought and it, it probably ought to be for most of us. That's terrifying thought that we would stand in front of God completely exposed. And he says, this is what the word of God does to us. It exposes us. If we look at ourselves in scripture and we let scripture really take a look inside of us, it exposes who we really are, where we're coming from, what our relationship with God really is like. So we then have to ask this question, you know, what, what hope do we have to overcome the biggest problem in our life? which is our separation from God, by the way. That's your biggest problem. What hope do we have to overcome the biggest problem in our life? And then what hope do we have to ensure 
that we're pursuing a right relationship with God because I don't want to pursue a wrong relationship with God. I don't want to do it my way and miss the right way, right? I I don't want to do it the way that I think leads me to him but really leads me further away from him and gives me a harder heart. So what hope do we have to ensure that we have a relationship with God and that we have a, we're pursuing a right relationship with him? And because then we start thinking, man, if God sees me, if, if my thoughts and my intentions and my heart and my motivations, if they're really exposed by the word of God and he knows who I really am, what if he rejects me? What if I'm exposed and really known? How can I ever stand in front of God? And know him and have a relationship with him. This is the big God problem that we all face, right? Christianity has, I think, a unique answer to what I what we call, it's been called, I didn't call it that. Well, what's been called the the God problem. And the God problem is this: Is there a God? Can he be known? And how can we know him? This is what's known as the God problem, right? And so you have people who are trying to solve the God problem in a million different ways. And Christianity has a unique set of answers to that, a unique set of solutions to these problems. First of all, is there a God? Yes, there is a God. And we have a unique answer to that. He is a triune God, three persons in one God. He's perfect. He's good. He is outside of this universe. He's other than. He's completely what we call transcendent. This is what we know about God. Yes, there is a God. He is triune, perfect, good, completely other than everything that you know in this life. Now the question is, okay, there's a God. Can, can I know him? Can I know this God? Yes, you can know this God. He has revealed himself. Matter of fact, part of God's nature, I would say, is, is that he reveals himself. God is a self-revealing God in nature, the constitution of man, and Jesus Christ. Is there a God? Yes. Can I know this God? Yes. How can I know this God? Now here's the real kicker for Christianity, right? This is what separates us from everybody else. How do I know this God? You have to be completely recreated through the cross of Jesus Christ and his ongoing ministry to have a relationship with God. There is a God, you can know him, and the how you know him is to know him through the work of Jesus Christ because our biggest problem is our sin. Our biggest problem is that we are sinful people. And that has to be undone and remade and we have to be recreated so we can have an ongoing relationship with him. We should be paralyzed at the thought of standing in front of God. That ought to be a terrifying thought in our minds that we would stand before the living God. But because of Jesus Christ, we're gonna look at this today. We're exposed by the word of God as being maybe fake or plastic not real, struggling. But thanks be to God because we have a high priest who came and he lived perfectly and he offered himself up as our sacrifice so we can stand confidently before God and call him our father. This is the great hope of Christianity. It's the great hope that we're gonna see today in just these three verses we're gonna look at. That yes, we're exposed by God and we're exposed in front of him. He knows everything about us. We ought to be terrified about that possibility of standing before him naked and exposed and yet we have a high priest right in Jesus Christ who has made a way for us to know God and to stand in front of him so let's look in Hebrews chapter 4 so we can dig into this what we find out about this great high priest 
Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Because we have Jesus as a high priest, we can know God and we can stand before God. He is our priest. Now, for those of us who maybe, maybe if we grew up in a, an Episcopalian church or a, a Catholic church, like we have a very um, specific understanding of what it means to have a priest. For those of us who did not grow up in those traditions, we have another understanding of what it means to have a priest. And probably both of them are bad and wrong, right? So when Jesus, or when the Bible, Bible says that, that Jesus is our high priest, he's probably neither of the preconceptions that we have in our heads about what a priest is, okay? So we really need to understand what he's talking about. So some of us are like this version of a priest, and he has the crazy hat, you know, and the clean clothes and the robes, and lives in a commune somewhere, you know, and he's perfect and better than everybody else, separate from everybody, you know, that kind of thing. That's one of our versions. Or... Maybe we have a really good understanding of the Old Testament, a few of us, and we think, okay, well, he's like the Aaronic priesthood. He's like the Old Testament priesthood. And even those guys, even that high priest, the one who could go in and see God, talk to God, commune with God one time a year, one day of the year, even that guy had to go make sacrifice for himself so he could be clean to go into the presence of God. So we, we, we have these versions of priests in our head that maybe make this a little more confusing um, about what it means that Jesus is our, our high priest. And here's what Scripture says about him here in Hebrews. He's neither of those things. He came and he lived fully as a man. He experienced temptation, but he never sinned. And that, that fact better qualifies him to be our high priest who is sympathetic with us. This is what, this is the argument that he's making. That he was a man, and he came and he lived perfectly, and that better qualifies him to be our high priest, because he doesn't have to make sacrifices for himself. He's perfect, and he can sympathize with us. Now we're at this point where we're like, well, how can Jesus possibly sympathize with me? He's perfect. He didn't sin. How can he know what it means to be tempted when he's never sinned? You have just made yourself the bar for what it means to experience temptation. Do you understand that? You've just compared the temptations that Jesus has experienced with your temptations and your inability to say no to his ability to say yes. And you're questioning whether or not Jesus can really sympathize with you because he never sinned. So he's like, you're like, he could not possibly know what it's like. What if the truth is that you and I don't know what it's like to be tempted because we give in all the time? Right? I don't need anybody to come sell me a pack of M&Ms, dude. If they're in my, pan my pantry, I'm eating it. I'm eating all of it. Mindy used to buy, and we had to exercise her, you know. She used to buy the big, like, three-pound bag of them, the peanut M&Ms at Costco. Anybody over there? Oh my gosh, they'll set you free, y'all. It's, yes, I see that, I see that hand in the back, a testimony. All right? Dude, it's gone in a week. Like, I can kill some peanut M&Ms. It didn't take much to tempt me to do that. I've never experienced the fullness of temptation on peanut M&Ms. I just give in. I just say yes. 
how would you and I even know what it means to really be tempted? We give in all the time. Simple things, silly things, big things. We consistently give in to temptation. Jesus was tempted, 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 and never gave in with the ultimate kinds of temptations. And he said, no, 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 no. He was tempted in a way that you and I will probably never really even understand to a degree that we'll never understand. What if the truth is that you and I don't know what it's like to be truly tempted because we give in all the time? What if Jesus is the only person to ever really be deeply tempted because he's the only one who ever said no? He's the only man who ever said no. He's the only person who's ever really been tempted. So when you and I come to him, you're like, oh, Jesus, you don't know what it's like. You don't know what it's like, how much I want this person, how much I want that thing, how much I want that job. You have no idea. You've never been through what I've been through. He's like, no, I've been through more. I've been through more. And what he said, because I overcame the world, you can overcome the world. He promises us that same strength and power as he sympathizes with our temptation. It's like Jenna when she was a little one. This was awesome. We went to some friend's house for a Super Bowl party. Why do people have those tiny trampolines in their house? I never understood that. You know what I'm talking about? I don't know. It's a workout equipment. Got a little tiny trampoline. She's like five. She's bouncing and playing on everything. Somehow or another on the side of it or off a spring, she gets a tiny little uh, metal splinter in her foot. She might have been five. And she's complaining, you know, they're little kids and they don't have shoes on all day long. And so we get home that night, it's bedtime, it's like 9.30 at night and she's complaining about her foot and she's like overly dramatizing it. She can't walk on it. We're gonna have to amputate it and stuff, you know. And so we, we, we get her upstairs and we finally take a look on it. It's just this tiny little metal, itty bitty tiny little thing. <laughs> it takes two grown humans to hold this five-year-old down, right? And, and we're picking it out of her foot. And she, I remember her screaming, you don't know what it's like. <laughs> yeah, baby, I've, I've had a splinter before. You know what I'm saying? I've done worse, you know? And I think sometimes when we're with the Lord, we're like, you don't know what it's like. And like, yes, I do. Yes, I do. I, I, I can sympathize with where you're at. I know your fear and I know the pain and I know the longing and the things that you're being tempted with. You can say no. I said no and I'll give you the same power to say no. He can sympathize with you and by God's grace, he can empower you to overcome. Amen? I don't want somebody who just feels bad for me. Right? That doesn't help me very much. I want somebody who feels bad for me and then can give me the tools I need to overcome. Amen? He is a sympathetic high priest. So when we come to him, he understands what we're going through. It says that he's a high priest who passed through the heavens. Every other high priest waits for heaven to come down. Right? One day a year, day of atonement, he waits for literally the presence of God to come down into the Holy of Holies to rest on the ark and to interact with him for some amount of time. Jesus didn't wait for the heaven to come down. He passed through the heavens. He went to God. He passes through and he enters God's presence so that you and I can enter God's presence too. Now and one day in the flesh. There's a double fulfillment to this prophecy. You can enter God's presence now. If you haven't already this morning, we're gonna give you another opportunity in a few moments. You can come into the very presence of God today. 
And there's going to be a day when that's where we live, in the presence of God. And Jesus has passed through the heavens as our high priest to make a way so that we can be in God's presence. In the Old Testament, this priestly sacrificial system they had, you need, to, you need to wrap your brains around this. There was only one man who could go into the presence of God. Do you understand that? Let's say there were six million Jews. Only one could ever go into the presence of God. And he had to be the high priest, and he had to go to the temple. And here's what it says about that. Hebrews chapter 8, we'll look at it in a few chapters. It says that the synagogue and the temple in the Old Testament were mere copies of the eternal heaven. They're just like a facsimile. They're a crude drawing of what is actually really true. And says Jesus goes to heaven as the bridge builder between God and man. As a man, he went as a high priest. And as God, he's the son of God, it says here in verse 14. Which means he is perfect man and perfect God. And he opens up a way for us to come into the presence of God because he is our perfect high priest. This is why it is such a big deal. Not a high priest who says, man, I hope I've done enough, right? I think it's uh, a bit of a myth, but it's a great myth, so I'm going to use it, maybe. Uh, there was a point, actually we know this later in the temple's history, right before Jesus was born, that they were tying a rope around the ankle of the high priest just in case. In case he went into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, and he was unclean and he died in there, they would drag his body out. One guy could go in, and there wasn't a guarantee you'd come out. He was not a high priest who said, I hope I've done enough to appease you, God. I hope I've done enough to make you happy. Jesus lived a perfect life, void of giving into temptation. He never gave into, into temptation so he could present himself on the altar. Now just think about this. He's the high priest who not only prepares the sacrifice and does the sacrifice, he's the high priest who then crawls on the altar, makes himself the sacrifice, takes on the punishing wrath of God so that he could ensure our access to God to ensure our ability to get to God's grace and God's mercy. What hope do we have to stand when God's word reveals that we are giving ourselves to so many other people and things? We have played the prostitute this week using some Old Testament biblical language. What hope do we have to stand before the throne of God? It is the finished work of Jesus and him mediating our way to God's throne. That's the hope that we have. And that is an amazing hope that he doesn't leave it up to us, right, to make ourselves clean because obviously we can't. So he opens up a high priest, or he opens up a, a way to God. Then what's crazy about this, so you have that in your head, you're Jewish, your grandparents were Jewish, your ultra super mega grandparents were Jewish, their grandparents were, like you've been Jewish for just generations upon generations, thousands of years, one man gets to go into the presence of God. Now we find out that Christ himself has gone into the presence of God. Then he says, and you can go into the presence of God, not groveling with a rope tied around your leg, but with confidence. Who, y'all, with confidence, we can go into the presence of God. He opens up the way, and 
This is also incredible, right? He perfectly understands what it's like to be tempted and to struggle with things that can lead us astray. So when I come to him, it's not like I'm speaking Mandarin Chinese to him and he doesn't, I don't know what you're talking about. He goes, man, I know I was there. I know. I know what it's like to lose. I know what it's like to take a beating. I know what it's like to see people you love fall and fail. I know. He's been there. With confidence, we can go in and have this relationship with him. Look at verse 16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We've already talked about it a little bit, but we are told to draw near. Do you have any idea how much of the Old Testament system was set up to keep us away from God? And I know that sounds counter-instinctual, but you need to go back and read the Old Testament a little bit. Matter of fact, what I would tell you, if you're really into Hebrews, and I mean this, you need to go read the book of Exodus at the very least. While we're reading, going through Hebrews, you need to read the book of Exodus. Leviticus would also be very helpful for you to really understand where we're coming from. But if you go back and read uh, the Old Testament, you're familiar with it. Yes, the sacrificial system made a way for us to get to God occasionally, right? With one person being our representative and the high priest. But it was also set up to keep us away from God. And, and you're like, what do you mean by that? Moses, who was sort of the forerunner of the priestly system, he's not even allowed to come into God's presence he has to turn away from the glory of God because God said, listen, it'll kill you. I can't show you who I am. It'll, you'll die. So he has to turn his face away from God. The people were not allowed to touch the mountain on which God was conferring with Moses. They couldn't even touch it. They had to set up a barrier around the bottom of the mountain where Moses is up at the top talking with God. There was a temple, a special house built for God. You, that's not even where God was. Like, you could go to the temple. Then there was a court for the women. Women couldn't go past that. Then there was a place for the Gentiles. They couldn't go past that. Then there was a place that only the priests could go in, and they couldn't go past that. And there was a place where only the high priest could go in. The whole thing was set up to keep us at arm's length from God because he's completely unapproachable because of our sin. Now because of Jesus, he's made a way. And verse 16 is amazing because what does he say? Draw near to God. What? Draw near to God. This blows up the whole paradigm. He tells common, ordinary people, because of Jesus, you can draw near to God. And it's almost a command. It verges on a command, the language that we'll use. We'll talk about that in a second. So there is rest here in God. It's in God's very presence to be close to him, to know that grace is there, to take away the weight of everything that would keep us at a distance. We do our best to do this kind of resting corporately on Sundays. We have the rest nights on Mondays. There's one tomorrow. We'd love to have you come to experience corporately this rest. And he says, draw near. In the English, it doesn't work very well, but basically what he's saying is, draw near today, draw near tomorrow, draw near every day, keep drawing near, draw near, draw near, drawing near now, drawing, draw near all the time. That's the language that's used here. Not once a week. Some of you think this is it. This is not it. This is the overflow of what you're doing every other day. It's not once a week. It's not one man. It's not one special place. It's all the time through Jesus Christ. Draw near. Be close to him. 
draw near to him. Keep drawing near to him, moment to moment, coming to his throne of grace for resources. Every time you have need, every time you have a praise to give him, or every time you need grace, you draw near. Because we have a high priest who has made a way for us, opened the way for us. So we're told to draw near, which just blows everything out of the water. And then he says this, you're going to come to a throne. Know what he says? You're going to come to this throne. So when you think of a throne, what do you think of? What comes to your head when you are thinking of a throne? Like it's a king, right? Which we just, again, we don't have it in our heads very well. We don't have great pictures of kings. It's a, an absolute ruler, a potentate. We don't even use that word anymore. It's a great word. He's a potentate. He is the ruler and the king of all the universe. If you're a literary nerd, you would love this in all the, C, the C.S. Lewis books, the kids' books, wardrobe books, where he, call, he calls God the emperor beyond the sea. Unquestionably powerful. Unquestionably powerful, and he is to be feared, and he is to be obeyed. He is the king and we come to his throne he is the king in position and in character so he's not a cruddy king he's an amazing king right he's not a king just because he has the power and the scepter and the throne he's a king because he is great in his character he is incredible he is the king so listen when you sing and we're going to go into another time of worship in a moment when you sing, you need to remember who you're singing to. And I really want to admonish us here. I want to admonish my church family here. Quit singing like you're bored. Who are you singing to? And I mean that. Who are you singing to when you come in here? Have we lost our minds? Are we here to hear a cool guitar riff or to see somebody play the drums amazingly or to hear a vocalist praise the Lord with the beauty of their talent? God forbid we have come into the presence of the king. You remember who you're singing to when you sing. Remember who you're singing to. Remember who you're worshiping. Remember who you're giving to. Some of us are so incredibly miserly. We're so greedy. Can we just admit it here in church? Just admit it. I like my stuff. And I like buying stuff, and I like going out when I want to go out, and I like buying anything that I want to buy. Can we just go ahead and say it? And how hard it is in our hearts to give a tiny percentage of that back to the one who gives us the breath that we breathe. You remember who you're giving to, guys. Not some horrible king who's looking to squash you down. He is the giver of all good, and he deserves everything. And if you can give more, give it. He's the king. Let's remember that every time we come into with our lives, with our money, with our resources. You remember who you're praying to. One of the things that I really hate about growing up in a fundamental evangelical church is we pray terrible prayers pansy, wimpy prayers. And everything ends with, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And I understand the sentiment behind that, but at some point or another, I stand before the king and I get to ask him for stuff. God, you're the king. 
I don't know how you could do this, but I need you to show up in some power right now. And all the resources that you have in the universe, can you just give me some of that right here? Because I need you to do something that can't be explained. Amen. Does that make sense, man? You remember who you're praying to when you pray. He's not intimidated, and he's not small, and he's not, oh, I don't know, I've got a, I've kind of dedicated a bunch of resources over here. If I can spare some, I'll give you some. That's not the way it works. You remember who you're praying to. And you know what else, man? I would say daily, you remember who you're relating to. He is the king who is your father and your friend, and he has welcomed you to his table, and he just wants to talk with you and walk with you every day. Remember that. We go to a throne with a real king on it. Moment by moment, we have access to that throne. Let's remember that. So we have this throne. Then he says, man, come to the throne with confidence. What are we confident in? I struggle with this, and I've always struggled with this. Is this like pride? Is it arrogance? Like in what way am I supposed to have confidence when I come to the Lord? A couple of things. First of all, have confidence in the completed work of Jesus. There's not a cover charge to get into the throne room. You know what I mean? Like, I don't have to tip the St. Peter or whoever stands at the gate to have access to dad. He has completed the work, so I get a pass, right? I get the free pass to go in and talk to him whenever I need to, to go to this throne of grace. You've got to be absolutely convinced in your heart and soul that Jesus has completed the work to open the way for you to get to the throne. Otherwise, you will feel like you have to earn your way there all the time. And that he can't hear your prayers, won't hear your prayers, doesn't want to talk to you. Jesus has completed the work. Have confidence in Jesus' completed work. Secondly, have confidence in the Father and his acceptance of the Son and anybody he brings with him. My son, Jordan's not here today, my, my son is the king of lost souls, man. And, and since high school, he has just brought lost people with him. And I mean like people who are lost, not just spiritually lost, but they're just lost, right? And he just brings them in. And some sketchy people, I'm just gonna tell you, some sketchy people sometimes. They got to come in my house and stay in my house and stay over the weekend and sleep at our house and eat with us and come to church with us because they came with my son. You gotta be absolutely utter convinced that if you come with Jesus, you get in. That God has accepted the work of Jesus and if you come with him, you're in. Come on, because you and I are sketchy people. We don't like to think of it that way, but we are. We are sketchy people, man. You know? St. Peter's like, God, don't do it. Don't let him in. <laughs> I'm just telling you. Right? And Jesus like, no, he's with me, Dad. Come on in, man. We're having a great time tonight. We have access to him because Jesus has completed his work and the Father has accepted his Son and anybody that comes with him and who we are now. You know, you've been recreated. You've been justified. You've been given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You've been declared as a child of the Father. You have the right, and I'll say it that way because God said so, you have the right to go to the throne. You absolutely have the right to go to the throne. Not because you're good and amazing, because God's made you to have the right. He's recreated you to have the right to go to him. So we have confidence to enter into the throne room, right? We don't crawl in on our belly. We don't do 56 Hail Marys and crawl our way up on our hands and knees up the stairs 10 times. We don't do works of penance. We come to the throne of grace because we have been recreated in the image of God and made his child. And he says, come talk to me. 
Ooh, guys, man, do y'all see what's happening here? It just turns everything upside down. Everything upside down. So who are we, man? We are invited guests. There's some great language, some of the stories that Jesus tells us. We're, we're invited guests. Not only are we invited guests, and we're the, so you gotta read these stories in Matthew and Luke, right, where Jesus talks about this. He says, hey, go invite all the cool people to come to the party. And the stewards do, and nobody comes. What does Jesus say next? Go ask the beggars and the poor and those in the byways and those in the hedges and those who are left out, ask them to come. And then he says, there's a huge party. Y'all, that's us. We are the invited guests undeserving completely to come to the party. And then what does he do? He makes us the honored guests. We're the invited guests and we are the honored guests. We are the celebrated returning sons and daughters of Christ. Man, he throws a party, right? We're his child. We're his children and we are coming to him to talk to him, to relate to him as father. When we have wandered for him day to day, moment to moment, we've wandered away and we come back and he's like, here he comes, man. Let's go, strike up the band, it's party time. We're gonna have a good time because my son's come home, amen. We're the invited guests, the honored guests, the celebrated returning sons and we are brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. This is the language used to describe us. How can we come to God with confidence? Not pride in our goodness, complete humility. This is who you've made me. This is what Christ has done to me. I will humbly and confidently walk in and ask you when I have need, amen, for grace and mercy. It's a throne. We're told to come near to it with confidence. And he says it's a throne of mercy. Like, Why do we need mercy? Because you need, you're supposed to get judged. This should be a judgment throne. This ought to be the place where you come in and all of your sins are laid bare and all of your unworthiness is exposed and you are condemned as guilty and then you're ultimately condemned to a place called hell. That's where this ought to happen. But for those of us who come in with Jesus, it's a throne of mercy and grace. Why do I need mercy? Because I really should be getting judgment and I should be getting criticism and I should be getting a rejection from God. This is what I should be receiving from this throne. I ought to be receiving those things, but mercy takes pity on us. Mercy takes pity on us. It sees our condition and it is deeply moved to do something to help us. Mercy enables grace and grace doesn't just hear and feel love toward us and compassion. New Testament grace works in us to change and to renew us and to empower us. Philippians 12, uh, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. God has given you works to do that he's prepared beforehand and he gives you the ability to do those works. That's grace. Mercy opens up the door, right? Because otherwise it's judgment and rejection. Mercy opens the door for grace to come in in our time of need. This is when you need mercy the most, right? Right? When you're at your time of need, God, I need mercy. He takes pity on us. He has compassion on us. He's moved to help us. It's a throne. There's a king on it. We're told to draw near to it with confidence, and it is a throne of grace. Now, here is where we should be doing laps around the room. It is a throne of grace, guys. Grace that not only sets us free from bondage and the slavery of Satan, and the fear of death, that's all chapter two. We've already looked at that. Grace that answers our prayers. Grace that speaks over our lives. Grace that directs our steps. Grace 
that gives us hope for our struggles and help in our pain, grace that provides uh, for our daily need for bread and water in our soul. The purpose, and this is what's awesome. So if you have a throne of mercy and grace, that means that the person who sits on it, their purpose is mercy and grace. That's what they do. Mercy and grace. It is a throne of grace. Grace means, and I'm, I'll say it this way, grace means that my really, my crappy prayers are heard. Do you feel like you pray bad prayers? Talk with our teenagers. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, you pray about something long enough and you feel dumb. And you don't even know how to say it anymore. And you don't even feel like you're asking for the right things. Does anybody ever do that? Like, I pray, the longer I pray, the more inept my prayers feel sometimes, most of the time. And I feel like, God, at this point, I just feel stupid talking to you. Can, can, do you are you even hearing what I'm saying right now? Because I don't, I don't even know what I'm saying anymore. You know, this is such a deep need. It's such a painful need. I don't know how to talk to you about this. Life has a way of beating us up and changing the way that we pray, affecting the way that we pray, maybe tainting the way that we pray. Thank God it's a throne of mercy and grace that I don't have to have flowery words and say it the right way for him to accept me, for him to hear what I am saying to him, right? There's a, a movie called Open Range. Kevin Costner makes great westerns and that's about it, okay? So he made a movie called Open Range, Kevin Costner, Robert Duvall. At the beginning of the movie, uh, their, their friends Mose, Mose was a buddy of his that worked with them and then Tig was the dog. And these bad guys kill Mose and Tig and they're burying them. And they're pretty rough guys and Kevin Costner looks at Robert Duvall and says, do you want to say something? And some rougher language, he says, I'm not talking to God. I'm kind of angry at him. So Kevin Costner says this about Mose. He says about Mose, well, he wasn't one to complain. He woke with a smile. He seemed like he could keep it there all day. Kind of man that say good morning and mean it, mean it whether it was or not. Tell you the truth, Lord, if there were two gentler souls in this world, I've never seen them. Seems like old Tig, the dog, wouldn't even kill birds in the end. Well, you got yourself a good man and a good dog. And I'm inclined to agree with boss here about holding a grudge against you for it. And I guess that means amen. Man, I'm glad God hears my prayers. Because <laughs> I pray prayers like that. God, this is the worst day. It's not going to get any worse than this. This seems completely unjust and unfair. I'm really hurt and sad and kind of angry. Amen. I don't mean that to be disrespectful. And some of you are already put off. And, and I would just say, just go through your fire and we'll see how you pray. Because you walk through that stuff, man, you're just going to radically alter your prayers. And your prayers will feel so inept. I'm just thankful that God hears it. And he hears your heart when you don't know what to pray and how to pray. And you don't sound flower anymore. You're just you and your brokenness. It's a throne of mercy and grace because if it wasn't, he would reject me from dear Lord. That's it. You can go now. I don't need to hear anymore. But he hears me out. Amen? It's a throne of mercy and grace. Here's what guarantees your access. Jesus Christ, he gets you in the door. Your need. What qualifies you to come to a throne of mercy and grace? Is it your, is it your ability to do, to like 
satisfy your own needs. God, I'm just here to tell you how great I am today. I just wanted to walk in. Thanks for Jesus. Hey, Nux for Jesus, right? I just wanted to really tell you guys that I'm really, really good. And I don't really need much. I have a lot of money. I've got a job. I've got a smoking hot wife and two kids and a great house and four cars and a vacation. Uh, thanks, God. I got it. What, what qualifies you to come into God's presence? Jesus Christ, need. Do you need something? This is your pass to get into the throne. If you don't need anything, you don't need mercy and grace. Why would you ever even want to talk to God? Humility. Coming to him and saying, God, I've got all this stuff, but in my heart there's a lot of dirtiness and ugliness and I've idolized some of these things and I worship them and my security is found in them. God, purge me of these things. I need you. I need you now more than ever. The more stuff that I have, the more I need you. Our need is what allows us to come in. Humility, a desperate need for God, gets you an audience with the king. Now, I think being a Westerner makes this harder. And it's probably why a lot of us don't take advantage of our rest nights. A lot of us do, but a lot of us don't. We're good enough, we have enough, that we can kind of parade our goodness in front of God anytime and then get what we want. Do y'all understand that that's the really sick part of, of prosperity gospel teaching? One of the sickest parts. It's a parading of my goodness in front of God so that he gives me more stuff. How heinous is that? How prideful and man-centered is that is that? And it's probably why that seeped into our Subconscious, our religious subconscious just enough that we we're not desperate for God. We really aren't. And then we feel bad because we're not good enough to ask for more stuff and then we get good enough and so we ask for more stuff and then we really don't need God to give us more stuff. See? It's a self-defeating kind of religion that you do not want to get sucked into. But it is probably why most of us, many of us don't take advantage of, I think, our rest nights Charles Spurgeon said, this is not the throne of majesty which supports itself by the taxation of its subjects, but a throne which glorifies itself by streaming forth like a fountain with floods of good things. It is a throne of mercy and grace with a king on it that we can go to with confidence. It's a throne of grace. Here's the other thing I'd say about our church. Any church but our church, because this is our church, right? Easter is coming, as Jared pointed out to us. And you know what? Listen, Easter's coming. That's awesome. Today is Sunday. We do this 52 weeks a year. 52 times a year, we're going to be here, and we're going to be doing this. Shouldn't we be asking ourselves a little bit, why aren't more people here? Not numbers. I'm not, I don't even care. If you know me, I don't even care. But don't you wonder... Why aren't, don't we have the bread of life? Don't we have the words of life? Don't we have the only rescue for the soul of man? Why aren't more people here? Because we have effectively in the West turned Sunday morning into an entertainment venue where you can get more stuff from God. This needs to be a house of prayer that leads people to the throne of grace. Now that doesn't sell well but it outlasts everything. This has to be a 
place of prayer, a house of prayer that leads people to the throne of grace. So I think a reason that many in our area don't go to church is because most of them have tried consumerism and secularism. They found it incapable of meeting their needs. And now listen, when they think about church or when they think about me and you, we're God's local reps, by the way. You ever thought about it that way? When they think about church or God, they think about me and you, and they often find a place that is about getting stuff or looking good or trying to control their lives or judge them for their imperfect lifestyles. Where will they find a gracious community of loving people who just accepts them as they are? Shouldn't this be a place that mirrors the throne of mercy and grace that we appeal to every day? Shouldn't we be a people that gives mercy and grace just like our Father gives it to us? TSF has to be that place. Our church has to be that place. A place of grace big enough for questions and doubts and mistakes and sins. A place that shows others that Jesus has enough grace for them and so do we. We have to be a people in a place of grace. Grace that not only pardons our sin, but then empowers us to not want to sin anymore. To greater things. Not just pardon for the past, but hope for the future. We have to be that kind of church. A place that echoes and reflects the grace and the mercy that God gives us. So he says, we're going to wrap up. He says, there, there, there remains a rest for the people of God, he says. This was earlier in the chapter. He says, there still remains a rest for the people of God. Now, I want you to remember chapter one. Some of you weren't here, so let me recap. Chapter one, there's no commands. All chapter one is about is Jesus is just better. That's the whole thing. Jesus is better. He's better than the angels. He's better than myths. He's better than Moses. And he says, consider Jesus. Think about Jesus. Deeply evaluate your lives based on who Jesus is. Think deeply about his work and his power to save and the demands that he puts on your life. So here's what I would say. There remains a rest for us. I think in light of what we've talked about and seen today with Jesus, don't cheapen rest as a commodity or a blessing that you have to purchase with your faith. That rest flows from a walk with Christ and the rule of Christ in your heart. There is a rest that remains for us in the person of Jesus Christ. The only fear that we're supposed to have is that we would miss Jesus. We would miss him and the rest that he would bring with him. The fear that we're supposed to have is that we've been watering the wrong plant. Buddy Jesus some of our worship songs, I would say, kind of girlfriend Jesus, plastic Jesus, religious Jesus, moral Jesus. Let's go to the high priest who can sympathize with our sins, who's made a way for us to get to God, who says, come draw near to the throne of mercy and grace because I've done it for you. I've, got, I've opened the way for you. Amen? Let's water that relationship and let's see what happens in our lives. I want you to see him this morning. Man, draw near to him this morning. How can we pursue the rest of of God, the rest that God has for us, and keep Jesus at the center of everything. How do we do that? I, I got to give you one more thing from Spurgeon. He was called the Prince of, of Preachers, and he's amazing. And I got to give you this because it's incredible. How do you keep Christ at the center? 
this high priest who's opened the way for us. He is wonderful, counselor, mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. Get up from your beds of sloth. Rise from your chambers of ease. Go forth, go forth to pray, to labor, to suffer. Go forth to live in purity. Go forth to walk with him alone, leaving even your kinsfolk and acquaintances if they will not follow with you. How can you tarry at home when your king is abroad? Today, let your eyes rest upon him. Let your eyes behold the head that is crowned with glory, wearing many crowns. Behold you too, his hands, which were once pierced, but are now grasping the scepter. Look to his girdle where swing the keys of heaven and the keys of death and hell. Look to his feet once pierced with iron, but now set upon the dragon's head. Behold his legs like fine brass, as if they glowed in a furnace. Look at his heart, that bosom which heaves and beats with love to you. And when you have surveyed him from head to foot, exclaim, Yea, he is the chief among ten thousand and altogether lovely. This is the Jesus that we are called to worship and live for and turn our hearts toward. He is the great high priest who has made a way for us to enter into the very presence of God when everything about us argues that we should be so far away from him, rejected by him, judged by him. This Jesus has made a way for us. And it is the greater way, the best way. I'm going to ask our band, our worship team to come back up. We're going to end with a time of worship and response today. And I want to encourage you as they come and as they prepare to lead us, how do we do this for the rest of our time? In light of what we've talked about, how do we rightly approach God for the rest of our time this morning? Let's draw near to God. First of all, maybe with repentance and confession. Most of us just don't do that anymore. Repentance and confession. Let's draw near to God, first of all, with repentance and confession. Listen, Jesus sits on a throne, and we do not want to take his grace for granted. How can you sing some of these words that we sing when you are harboring anger, when you are harboring lust, greed, covetousness, when you are so far away from him, do you realize that, that God basically says to us, listen, I want you to come to me, but if you're going to come to me and you're going to hold on to your sin and keep it safe and warm because it makes you feel good, don't sing, don't pray, just don't talk to me. So God's got like a system, you know what I mean? So there's grace for us, but we have to come humbly before him, confessing our sins, throwing ourselves on his grace, repenting of those things. So that's the first thing I would say. Let's go to him. God, you sit on a throne you sit on the throne. What you say goes. Here's how I have not lived my life this week in a way that, that reflects you, the fact that you're a king, a good king. You've made demands on me, and I have not given myself to them. Start with confession and repentance. Second thing I would say is we come with open hands. Open hands. We're not going to bribe God right? God, I'll give you my goodness. I'll give you my kids. I'll give you my spouse if you will give me, right? We're not going to bribe him. So we're going to come with open hands, both to not bribe God. We're not going to barter with God. 
And then just to say, whatever you want to give me, give it to me. I need, I need, I need. Give this to me. I'm counting on you. Confession and repentance, open hands for mercy and grace. God, forgive me, empower me, change me at the core of who I am through your grace and your power. How can we be in front of a God who is so perfect and pure? How can we come to this God and pray or worship or ever ask for help? What hope do we have? We have a high priest who has passed through the heavenlies and he is lovely and he is fully able to not only get you to God, but to make sure your prayers are heard and then grace for your time of need. Amen. So let's go into this time of worship and prayer. You do what you need to do. We'll come back in just a few moments to kind of wrap up our time. Let's go into a time of worship. Father, we want to lay ourselves before you. It says already that the, your word, the Bible, already exposes us. You already know what's true and real about us anyway. So God, we come to you this morning and we say that we have chosen other gods this week. We have chosen other things and people to love and to worship. Forgive us. Thank you for your mercy and grace that you don't give me judgment because I deserve it. Thank you for Jesus. So I come with him. I come with my brother Jesus and I say, will you hear my prayer? This is what I need, God. I need this. I need this. I got to balance my life. I got to balance finances. I have to raise children. I have to figure out my health issues. I have to plan for the future that I can't see clearly and I'm afraid and God, I have needs. Give me what I need. Pray it in Jesus' name, guys. Let's worship him. Let's pray this morning.